Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult movie podcast that takes... <clears throat> hang on, you know, let me get a big old sip of water. Hell yeah. I can feel myself talking out of my nose. <coughs> Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive into a different film each episode. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre, culture, and the history of psychotronic cinema. I'm Charles. I'm Sam. I'm John. And wouldn't you know it, we've dusted off all the sweat and blood and filth from our bodies and minds after last week's deep dive into the legendary Category 3 film, Dr. Lamb, only to immediately jump back into the gutter, roll around and bathe in the fetid waters of sleazy exploitation cinema. Granted, this week the film at hand is a bit more prestigious and uh, highbrow than our usual beat. It nonetheless is also right up our alley. And that's why this week we are going fist deep on one of my favorite movies of all time and also the single most requested episode. And that is William Friedkin's 1980 masterpiece, Cruising. Cruising is a figure standing in the shadows and a voice whispering in the dark. Where are you? I'm waiting for you. Cruising is looking dangerous and being in danger. Al Pacino is the New York cop who's cruising for a killer. Cruising Certificate X at the London Pavilion and Odeon's Kensington and Chelsea now. about these. What about them? What are they for? Well, a light blue hank in your left back pocket means you want a blowjob. Right pocket means you give one. The green one left side says you're a hustler, right side you're a buyer. The yellow one left side means you give gold in the shower, right side you receive. The red one, right, please. Say anything you want. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go home and think about it. I'm sure you'll make the right choice. Now, before we get into our main discussion on the film itself, as well as its legacy and subtle influence across decades and genres, I think it would be important to first take a look at the many criticisms leveled at the film, both during production as well as after its wide release in American cinemas. Now, full disclosure, I avoided watching this movie for years because of the controversy surrounding it. I literally, I, I assumed that this movie was going to be extremely homophobic and would just paint this like, you know, demon-like portrait of the leather community and just like characterize gay people. And I just didn't really care to see that. And now that I have actually watched the film for myself. Yeah, damn, finally. Uh, it's wonderful. I mean, like, number one, I, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I really, really did. And I can't get it out of my head. But number two, while I do think it was unfairly maligned at the time of its release, some of the criticisms are valid. Or rather, I kind of get why there was such fervor, especially in the gay community and the leather community, about this film's production. I don't think there was any further... Not from the leather oh God, community. There, 
there was no protest from the leather community. They were actively involved oh, okay. in the film. Most of the extras that you see in the club, which is supposed to be the mine shaft, which is a real leather club and the anvil were real regulars. So it wasn't the leather community that had okay. a problem. Or maybe there was like some people. So was it more just like from your mainstream. regular like... Yes. I mean like... And I can understand like at the, that time I can't imagine there that being too many mainstream movies about mainstream gay life. But here let's go and look at this subsection and this exploitive like check this weird shit out yeah. kind of way. And, and also I imagine... I mean sure this movie did come out over a decade after Stonewall and, you know, great strides were made in the gay community. The seventies was definitely premium years to be a, you know, a gay dude in New York, but there still were like fucking like raids on some of their bars and there still were active violence. Not that there fucking isn't anymore. Like gay bashing is still a thing, but there were like, there was a target on some people's backs to the point where they could fucking lose their job if it came out that they were gay. Well, the whole Harvey Milk thing was like a year or two before this. Really? Oh, that was the late 70s? I think so, right? Yeah, I think so. And it's not even just like the issue of being outed and losing your job or, you know, being harassed by the cops. I think in the meatpacking district in particular, which is this, if you haven't been to New York and you're not familiar with the area, it's basically lower Manhattan used to be this really like run down area that had all these really cheap lofts where artists and musicians lived. And it's also where a lot, it's, it's where a lot of New York countercultural life happened. And that's where the main gay bars and especially the leather bars were. And I think one of the big complaints at the time was that if you were just kind of cruising around the neighborhood and some drunk person with a bug up their ass recognized you and assumed you were queer, they would try to beat you, possibly try to kill you. There were like gangs of teenagers who sometimes would go down and beat up gay men. Yeah, so to your point, and also to John's, the fact that there was very little representation of any facet of gay life in mainstream Hollywood, obviously there are tons and tons of underground films and movies that we fucking love and watch that are lower budget and smaller movies that existed within that scene, especially in New York, I mean... Not just Andy Milligan, but what was that movie that we watched? Sorry to fly around. That uh, oh, the San Francisco one that oh, was so San amazing. Yeah, Ele- Elevator Girls in Bondage. Yes, yeah, so wonderful. Good. Fucking short little snippet slice of the the gay scene in San Francisco, and I think the seventies. But anyway, uh, because there were no real mainstream depictions, because this one comes out and it is about the fucking the homo killer, you know, stalking gay men in New York. I understand why people were like, Jesus fucking Christ, come on. I can't, like, catch a break, especially people that are, like, in the closet or, you know, that are worried about when they go fucking cruising that they're going to get fucking gay bashed because they think, oh, now the the gays are killers. Yeah, but I think 
some of it and this is the this is the area that I have a big problem with is I think some of the protests came from gay men who wanted to be as mainstream as possible and basically kind of wanted to assimilate into straight society and not be seen as abnormal or threatening or transgressive in any way yeah which, which i i totally get i mean you want to be able to live your life in safety and health and happiness and all of that but something that continues to be a problem especially around things like pride parade and the various pride events throughout the year is these more mainstream gay people who think that there shouldn't be any place for leather or kink yeah. at Pride oh, totally. because it's too transgressive and it's too pushing the envelope. And I think some of the protests around cruising were because people didn't want representation for the leather community, which frankly sucks. No, I totally agree. While I do totally see validity in some of the anger that people had at this movie just Coming out at that time, I get it, but also, like, this movie's fucking great, and it's not homophobic. Like, it's, there are some things that I kind of, I'm sure we'll come into a little bit later when we're yeah. discussing the film itself, that are a bit on the nose and a bit, like, character and like, oh, this kind of sounds like a straight dude wrote it, but it really, it's not at all the movie that I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I, I, I had a completely wrong like because all i heard was just that like oh gay people protest this movie they didn't want it made and it's it's fucking you know don't see that watch these movies so i watched other queer cinema and this was one that i assume was just like hollywood getting it wrong i mean it is hollywood and it i don't think it really counts as like an authentic queer film but it's made with the participation as i said a few minutes ago of so many people in the New York leather community that you can't totally write it off unless you also want to write off leather. I which mean, we could talk about that more in a little bit. They went to the bars, they filmed the people, or at the, they went to the clubs, they filmed the people at the clubs. Yeah. And William Friedkin, because you had to do this to be inside, wore a jock strap the whole entire time yeah. he was making this movie, like while filming those scenes. So I, they did. Get involved, you know? I I think it's a bit more than like, oh, this is just like the straight guy's idea of it. No, I think he took his like documentary roots and and dived right in. Totally. And I think that that's one of the things that I kind of harp on a bit is the idea that like some people cannot tell certain stories at all, you know? I hate it. That it's like, because it's, it's sort of like, I mean, I get that it's annoying if every single movie about black life that came out was made by white people. That's different, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the idea that like certain films shouldn't be made by certain people at all, like once that like that line of logic is to be accepted and indoctrinated, it will lead to like when you're writing a script, if you know a woman is talking, it needs to be written by a woman at all times, and it's like it's insane. No, you're a as writers or as a creative type. Like obviously, everyone should be in the fucking room. I'm not saying that like I just don't think that that line of thinking is. If is you fruitful. have empathy, I think you can write for most people. Yeah, and but yeah, but specific experiences. Yeah, I think you should do your research at for least. Sure. And, and and that's one thing about William Friedkin that I I really admire 
is I, I didn't realize this, but like even with when he was making the French Connection, he was like embedded in some police departments. One of the guys that he got, who a character is like based on, was like a real detective guy and this guy later went on to be one of the producers of cruising yes like he yeah. got him into the film scene be- because he was like following him around and figuring out everything he could about him like he's dogged you know and he wants his movies to have this level of realism that is fucking it's, it's like untouchable like some of his movies are a little fantastic i mean live and die in la for sure but no that's all based on real stuff as well <laughs> yeah I, I i mean it has a more like fun fantastic vibe to it that's what i like about his movies though where it's like half like we're gonna do this as realistically as possible but we're still gonna make a genre movie yeah yeah and, and the exorcist is the perfect example of like why it's so scary is because you believe it right like i am not a fucking christian but like oh yeah the devil is real and only God can fucking get the devil out of the girl with through the vessel of, you know, the Catholic Max von Sydow. And it's scary to me, even though I have no belief in that shit. And this is a bit of an aside, but there's one criticism that I hear often about William Friedkin that I think is actually a, a fucking asset. He has this quality to his work that is a bit almost detached like there's a distance between you and a lot of the characters and one of the only times where that isn't really the case is with the exorcist because of the love that you feel between the mother and the daughter and the whole first chunk that is used intentionally to make you just feel so much pain at what eventually transpires but usually he keeps a distance from these people and has, like, no real comment on things. That's absolutely what I love about his Yeah, movies. oh, it's terrific. Yeah. He doesn't moralize you. These people are the way they are. This world is the way it is. And, yeah, yeah just hold on. It, he doesn't... Like, Gene Hackman plays a racist cop in The French Connection. He's the lead character. Yeah. And never do they stop and be like, oh, by the way, that's terrible. They're like, no, he's a racist cop. What would you expect? Exactly. He's a fucking shithead pig working in New York fucking city. He's a dirty fucking cop, like every goddamn New York City cop, you know? Yeah, if, if, if that movie was made today, they would have to have that scene, like, to show, like, how wrong he is. And it's like, yeah. I don't need the movie to spoon-feed me that racism's bad. I understand that. Yeah, like, I... Honestly, when I was when we were watching French Connection, I was rooting for the fucking bad guys most of the time, you know? And I love the the ambiguity of the the ending of that film in a lot of ways. Like no one really fucking wins. And but. the fact that like the police are like these dirty scoundrels and the fucking bad guys actually this guy who loves his daughter is very classy. Yeah, I think cruising has a similar feeling where you I can imagine a lot of people feeling a lot of different ways about it and about the people that are in it and empathizing with so many different characters because there's distance kept that you have to you have to bridge the gap yourself and i i love that like i love doing work or rather like that there's something for me to do while watching a movie that isn't just passively watching it yeah i don't know i don't know if i see it the same way i think it's more that he like to me i think he presents Kind of like John was saying, this view of the world that is really kind of predatory. A lot of his characters are really lonely and isolated and alienated. Like Damien Karras in The Exorcist is key example of that. Dimi, why you do this to me? 
Please see me. I'm afraid. You're not my mother. Dear me, please. Can you give her something? She wants a coma. You're not my mother! And I think it's the same thing with Cruising and Al Pacino's character. I, I don't even think that Friedkin is intentionally keeping us at arm's length from the character. I think the character doesn't know himself, which is part of what makes him so good in this undercover role. And I think Paul Sorvino, RIP, uh, his detective character kind of recognizes that malleable quality. Like, here is this guy who, he's a cop, he's younger, he's sort of coming up in the ranks, but he doesn't seem to have a core identity, which is why the whole situation, he, he's able to kind of be infected by violence the way that the characters are in The Exorcist. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And in To Live and Die in L.A. It's sort of like these people who start off a little more innocent are really shaped and kind of changed in a negative way by the violent events that they experience. Yeah, the the first moment in the film that really kind of sold that point, or like brought that point home really, was when Al Pacino's detective character, Officer Steve Burns, he had been undercover for time is kind of hard to understand in this movie <laughs> or the, the passage of time is like I'm not really sure but what kind I of I think grounds... it's all in the summer I think it's one yeah. season that makes sense it's very sweaty it is a, it's a sweaty way too movie. sweaty to be wearing that much black leather yeah, yeah. I kind of like that though you know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like yeah. that but uh, he comes home to his his girlfriend. He's a straight cop, undercover in the in the S and M leather gay scene in New York, and he comes home to his girlfriend for like the first time after being you know gone for a stretch, and they have this like really rough sex scene where he's clearly working some shit out. He's working some shit out. But what's so great is that the movie never tells you what it is that he's working out. If it is feelings of him seeing his own masculinity threatened by these men who are so much more masculine than he is, that he needs to like reassert himself at home, or if he's working through feelings of uh, curiosity. Oh, I just assumed he was super horny. Yeah, getting all fucking horned up. And all poppered up. But what's great is that the movie doesn't... It doesn't tell you. No. It's exactly what John said a few minutes ago, like this idea of having films not spoon feed things to you. I think that's... You find that in all of Friedkin's movies. It's like he presents a story, usually some situation on the extreme fringes of society but he never tells you how to feel about the yeah. character's choices. And I think that that is what makes them so gripping. Yeah. I think this one's like far and away the most ambiguous of all of them, though. Oh, yeah. I, I know we're going to get to this later, but the for the ending, like Sam looked at me, he's like, what do you think happened? And I was like, I was like, give me a minute. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've seen this movie about five times. I'm still processing it a lot. And like, I notice new things each time. Yeah, that me makes, too. Yeah, that like... Part of me feels like... I'm almost like not even qualified because I just watched this movie for the first time last week. Which is so crazy. It is. And I'm still 
you know, I'm still taking it in. Great choice of words for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what? Okay, so here's my only real complaint about the film. I would have given it five stars if we had seen one fucking cock. If we had seen one single swinging thing. I mean, like, if any movie is begging for hardcore inserts, it's this one. You know? Well, and here you go. It's what is there a funny fun, that you say is that? Is there a fan edit out there? Do, no. Do you know when, like, horror directors, they'll, like, make a scene extra gory so that the MPAA will cut it out? So that they can keep the gory scenes they want in, so oh, they can bargain. I just, I just heard about this recently with with Casino. Oh, there was okay. a scene where uh, some guy gets his fucking face blasted off, and they show like the teeth flying out. Another guy gets and and he did all of this disgusting shit, so that way they can he can keep the fucking baseball bat. Yes, that he yes. knew they were gonna it's, make it's him cut the baseball bat. Practice. practice. Well, Amazing. There's 40 minutes of hardcore man on man fucking. That was in it. So I don't know if the whole... So there's a big mystery around this. What's undisputed is that there are 40 minutes removed from the film, which is, you know, a lot. And the rumor, which I think at times Friedkin has confirmed and other times has denied in his way, are that all those extra scenes are, are footage from the the leather bars and apparently there's actual like cock sucking and penetration and hand jobs and you see it implied in some of the scenes like there's Lots something going on below the line of the camera it's so yeah. it's one of those rumors that seems so plausible he had to bring this movie to the mpa 50 times jesus christ yeah and well, there was... it's about leather sex yeah like, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow! So, so, wait, 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 wait! Is there a fucking cut out there? Is there a cut? No, the, out? no. that footage is long gone. He was oh. he went looking for it for one of the restorations. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. That, that literally so was sad. my only complaint. Well, it, it's was that out there was there, no dick in this movie. Did you did you notice the subliminals during the murder scenes? <gasps> I didn't catch this until like multiple. He he learned subliminals from William Peter Blatty, oh. who wrote The Exorcist, and was involved in basically government intel military intelligence and he he was like look if you really want to fuck with people you have to splice these scenes into the exorcist and they traumatize people so i think friedkin was like we, we struck gold yeah <laughs> let's do it again well, no but what are the subliminals it's in just like quick flashes of anal sex right before somebody gets stabbed yeah, because it's, it's another wild. form of penetration. Holy shit. Freaking yeah, you, rules. You have to watch this movie a bunch of times. I cannot wait. I absolutely cannot wait. It sucks. It played at the Mahoning Drive-In recently. On 35 millimeter yeah. and Harry gave away, or he didn't give them away. You had to buy them, but he had cruising themed hankies made. <laughs> That's awesome. I of course bought a red one. For fisting. For fisting. Obviously. I would have gotten a yellow one. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Which side are you going to wear it on, left or right? Uh, what's what's getting peed on? Left. Yeah. That would be the yeah, left there side. We go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A, a leftist over here. <laughs> <laughs> I would have both ends. I would have both. I, I should, maybe in the show notes, try to find a link to the shirt I'm wearing, which... It's an awesome cruising shirt. Yeah. So it's, it's like... My friend Brian, who works for Vinegar Syndrome and is so obsessed with cruising, he has a, a cruising tattoo. 
he uh, clued me into this shirt, which has the entire hanky code printed on the back of the shirt. It's incredible. That's sick. But unfor- this is, uh, I'm absolutely going to cut this little bit out. I had tickets to go see the cruising with you at the drive-in. But a week before it was due to go, oh, my yeah. mom came up to me and said, hey, do you want to go see Rage Against the Machine with me in New York? And it's like, it's my fucking mom. If your mom comes up to you and says, let's go see a, a 90s rap rock anti-government <laughs> She band. tried to make me go too. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I have to see Cruising on 35 millimeter. And she was like, but wait, you've seen it before, right? Oh, I was like, you don't, don't understand, Connie. You just don't get it. <laughs> I will not have traded the th- I mean, I w- wish I had seen Cruising at the drive-in. Oh, my God. The print looks sure. so gorgeous. I fucking wish no I had seen No opening title card. That always blows my mind. Really? I, I saw it at the Austin Film Society back in, like, February or March. And I wonder if it was the same print because it was beautiful. It was, And it had what's missing from the Blu-ray, the opening card where it's like, this movie is not representative of gay culture. It is representative of a very small subculture in, within that community. Which, which like wild. was my first time seeing that because this movie I think was out of print for a while because I I looked for it, it was it for hard a bit. yeah it was hard to get a hold of for a while same thing with sorcerer yeah sorcerer I think is was way harder I remember seeing cruising on DVD at Borders that was how I learned oh, about okay. it was really I, yeah I, I saw the DVD at Borders and I was like what's this it's got Al Pacino in it you know the right. Al Pacino I mean it. So I have mixed feelings about Pacino overall, but when he's on, he's on. I love him in this film because he's so good at that sense of like ambiguity and he doesn't seem to have a strong central identity, but Friedkin originally wanted Richard Gere and I wish I could see that version because solely because of Richard Gere's performance in Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is fucking insane. Well, the thing is, is, is this performance required someone who was, like, not exactly meek? Yeah, he's he's kind of submissive. Yeah, compared to all the big fucking, like, Manowar guys in yeah. the club. Yeah. You know. <laughs> oh my gosh, it is all of the scenes in the club are amazing and all those gay bars like it's it's literally like a Tom of Finland painting come to life. It's yeah. magical. And it's just it's so awesome. One of my favorite bits is when it's fucking cop night. It's one of the best Giant, scenes. Yeah. Pacino walks in and he's like in a fucking his like black tank top, leather jacket or whatever, leather yeah. jacket. And they kick him out. Well, but first they confront him and he thinks he's been made and they figured out he's a cop. And they're like, Where you going, friend? What do you mean? Got a knife, gun, anything at all? Why? What's wrong? You police officer. Wow. This is precinct night. You've got the wrong attitude. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Right. Where's your gun? Where's your badge? Are you a fucking cop? And he has this look of panic on his face. Like he just wants to yeah. de-escalate the situation. And they're like, dude, it's precinct night. If you're not dressed like a cop, you can't be in it's here. Awesome. Yeah. It's like, a, it's a nice little like Kafka moment totally. in the middle of this. I mean, a great moment, you know, like it's, so, that's a great, that's a great bit. It's so good. But that is something that I think about a lot is the way that he's so non-confrontational and he's like 
not as built as a lot of the guys in there and not as tall because he's just not a big guy. But he goes in and is so like inobtrusive and tries to not make eye contact with a lot of people. And those scenes are my favorite because I think they're just the most fascinating. It's like how he's interacting with these other men in this very specific environment. Friedkin hates Pacino in this movie. Really? Yeah, yeah. And Pacino refuses to talk about this movie. So I don't know what happened with them. Huh. Freakin' really wanted Richard Gere. Yeah. But Pacino is the bigger star. So they decided to go with him. I guess he learned after uh, not casting Steve McQueen in Sorcerer. Which, I mean, by the way, Roy Scheider was the better choice in that movie. Yeah, I agree. Roy Scheider is great. Yeah, and also, like, Steve McQueen, it would have felt like Steve McQueen's got this. You know what I mean? Roy Scheider actually, like, it keeps it dangerous. Yeah, I I would have felt less tension with McQueen. Yeah, yeah, I've been like, yeah, McQueen can, yeah. But, like, Roy Schneider's the kind of guy who I could see get fucking blown to bits. But But also, wait, what's the other, I I feel like we were just reading this and talking about this with French Connection, where it was like, there's this whole oh. list of people that he wanted before he got stuck with Gene Hackman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. There was James yes, Conn. Yeah. All uh, kinds of people on that list. And what's crazy... He didn't want Gene Hackman at all. No, yeah. he, he also wanted Steve McQueen for that. And, like, Steve McQueen would have been awful in that role. Right, right, yeah. right. Like, what? I think every single one of those people that he mentions, like, probably actually could have filled Roy Scheider's shoes in yeah. French Connection. But French Connection's one where, like, Gene Hackman, like... The guy kind of like no offense to Gene Hackman, he's he's dead, right? No, no, no. he's just retired. Okay, thank he's, God, he's, he's just one hundred percent. No offense to Gene Hackman, may God rest his soul. <laughs> but the guy kind of looks a little bit like a clown with his makeup off. Yeah, you know what I'm he saying? Has a certain like, look. He's got like a very round face. He's got this like bulby clown nose and like. Yeah, that hat. But he French connections like a, not doing him any. And, and you know how like every <laughs> single clown you see. In real life, you're like, oh, I bet this guy's got a drinking problem. I think that Gene Hackman absolutely looks like that kind of guy, which is why he's fucking perfect in that role. This this cop who is like kind of buffoonish when you think about, but who is like... Oh, totally buffoonish. Uh, but who is getting the fucking job done in this fucking also, dirty fucking pig New York City way. Exactly. You know? He has this power trip where he's like, I'm not going to let fucking Frog one get over on me i'm gonna get him which is what makes him it's like he stops being the film it, it reminds me a lot of the dynamic between the two agents in to live and die in la where it's like they're the 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 main more aggressive one you question whether he's the protagonist or the antagonist for most of yes, the movie yeah. yes it took me a little while before that set in when we were watching it then i realized i'm like Oh, this He's guy's the, the bad villain. guy. He's yeah. the villain. And and yeah. that's that's great. Yeah. You I know, love that. and and I love that he makes these things that are very like standard cop dramas. Like what you would expect I to mean, be. I mean, The Exorcist is a cop drama yeah. in parts. He's clearly not a police respecter at all. William Freakin, which hats off. That's all. Oh, yeah. He's got shitty cops or at least like ambiguous cops in many look of at, his look movies. Look at the opening of Cruising with oh, our boy Joe, Joe Spinell. Hey, girls, you working? You buying? No, honey, I ain't buying. Hey, what is that? You break your ass, you fall down on those high heels. Yeah, so your sister. My what? Come here, I'll break your face. Come here. Hey, man, give us a break, okay? I said, come here. 
Come on, you already hauled my ass in last week hard on. A lot of good it did me. Come on, baby, I cannot handle another bust this month. Hey, look, you're on my corner again, shithead. You know what that means? Get in the car. In the car. This cast, oh my God. So something that I realized this time around, because Charles actually looked at the credits, there's a scene where, so we also, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I lost my mind. Oh, so dude. there's a scene where this is still relatively in the beginning of the film where Al Pacino has accepted the undercover assignment and has, you know, moved into this apartment in the neighborhood and goes to this shop where he's asking about the hanky code. And there's a guy behind the counter who explains, who sort of like barks it out to him and tells him this Yellow's is... Yellow's when you want to get pissed Yeah, on. this is for fisting, this is for this, this is for that. And he's like, which one do you want? And Pacino sort of like, it's a great moment. He panics. He's like, you know what? Let me think about it and I'm going to come back. Yeah, I'll think about it. And it's like, it's like this is not something you have to think about, yeah, my dude. dude. So yes, I've out. always thought... It's funny how the guy behind the counter kind of looks like Powers Booth. Yeah, but and you turned to me and said, "Like, doesn't that guy look like Powers Booth?" I'm, I'm like, like, "Yeah." I, I'm like, I don't it think it looks his, just like Powers I'm, I'm Booth. Like, I don't think his voice is deep enough, though, because you know Powers Booth, especially a little later in life, had that super distinctive like daddy Ooh, voice. Yeah. yeah. And it's fucking Powers Booth. Yeah, it is. This whole time, I just thought it was a someone who looked like fucking him. Al Bundy. In oh my there? god, yeah. yes. And Al Bundy has that great line about how he's gonna give the guy the ball test. We're gonna get a sample of your sperm. And you're gonna take the floating ball test. What's that? We're gonna fill that sink with water. And we're gonna dip your balls in it. And if they don't float, you're our main man. Do you understand that? Oh, my God. So that interrogation scene is one it's of the brutal. most intense scenes in the movie. Wait a minute. We haven't even said what the plot of this movie is. It's a, I, <laughs> I have a, a sneaking suspicion that this is one since, like you said earlier, this is one of our most requested episodes. We're playing the trailer. It, do, it doesn't have a... It, oh, I, I actually don't know, but maybe the movie trailer announcer voice for it, the thing it is does. just like, it has, in a dark and seedy no, underworld. It, it's, got a great, it's got a great trailer. One man must go undercover to find because out. Because Paul Sorvino told him he had to. He was told by a man who's even bigger than him. <laughs> so I noticed this, this interrogation scene. That's where we're headed, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The only time there's S&M violence in this movie, it's never in the gay club. Everything's it's, consensual. It's in the interrogation It's in the interrogation scene. room with that big fucking dude that comes in and just slaps oh the shit out wearing of him. This is my <laughs> probably is... single favorite moment <sighs> in the film. He walks in wearing a, cowboy, a leather cowboy hat, nothing but a cod piece, cowboy boots, and slaps Pacino so hard he falls on the ground and then just walks out of the room. Who is that guy? Ever see a knife like this, Skip? What the <laughs> fuck? So that's something that the NYPD used to do. That's a, that's Are you for serious? real thing. Because this this felt to me like surrealness. Like this felt like the movie was suddenly going into fucking weird. The movie like, goes into that territory that for was, sure. 
the that was the point was because then they could beat a suspect and then the suspect will tell the judge what happened and the judge would be like that, what the fuck did you, you just made tell that me that up. happened holy shit yeah. and holy that shit. Yeah. that guy who walks into the room the the way he looks was apparently super influential for Robert Maplethorpe and like changed the you know focus of his career in the 80s because he was so like yes influenced by Tom of Finland for sure but so struck I think he said this guy in this scene in cruising made me want to photograph more gay black leather men God bless <laughs> it's an and I've heard rumors that it also influenced the guy in the village people. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I believe it. <laughs> it's it's a small yeah. world. Do we need to define what leather is? Well, it's a, a tanned cowhide. <laughs> I'm pretty sure everyone knows. Uh, I mean the leather community. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So br- brief explanation. It's basically a gay fetish subculture that's largely snm themed that grew out of gay biker culture in the 50s also from this desire to kind of reject the gay stereotype of you know men being really sort of swish and loving musicals yes. and and so it's as you said in the beginning of the episode it's this really aggressive hyper masculine basically saying you know gay people are a range of things being gay doesn't mean that you have to look a certain way or act a certain way or have certain sexual preferences and so there's definitely some crossover with the straight snm community like the most of this, the bar scenes in this film are supposed to be set in this notorious leather bar, bar called the Mine Shaft, but the Mine Shaft wouldn't allow them to film in the actual club. So the extras are made up of Mine Shaft extras. Pacino actually went to the Mine Shaft a bunch of times to prepare for the role, but it's shot in this place called the Hellfire Club, which is a really long running straight S&M club in New York. Have either of you ever been to a, a leather club? They don't usually let women in, uh, but well, yes. I have to briefly tell my weird leather story, which is... So I think I probably talked about this on our show or at least like on social media or, or other podcasts I've been on about how growing up, gay male artists and musicians were basically my biggest influences. I mean, I've talked about how Coil's my favorite band and they're definitely leather adjacent. And so when I was like 13 and got on the internet and discovered the wonderful world of... Porn? Well, not just... Because I remember that too. Not just porn, but also... Uh, fetish stuff but all the different message boards oh the community aspect i found the community aspect which of course would link to all kinds of porn yeah but once i found out that the leather community was a thing it was like it blew my mind like that there was this place where you could get all dressed up in leather and have whatever crazy wild sex and fantasies you wanted and no one would judge you. And it was like outside the realm of, you know, like, especially as a younger person, I felt like dating 
there was this list of rules that I didn't understand, like social engagement. And so it's like, here's a place where you go. And as long as you meet a certain dress code and a certain code of behavior, you can do whatever you want and you just have sex and you don't have to negotiate all these weird social things. So I've always kind of revered the leather community, even though I'm a woman and can't go in these clubs. It just became this like mythic thing in my coming of age brain. That's beautiful. It's also part of why I love this movie so much. But Annie Sprinkle has given interviews saying that she's one of only two women who were ever allowed in the mine shaft. So who? Annie Sprinkle. Classic porn star that got peed on a lot. Annie Sprinkle is a fucking legend. We'll have to do an episode on her at some point. Oh, I can't wait. Legend. So, uh, my, I, I've only been to the leather club once and I feel like my, uh, my experience was a little bit more like Pacino, you know, where I was, uh, cause I'm, I'm a straight guy at the time I was still kind of figuring some things out, but I was pretty sure I was straight uh, it was my, my cousin's birthday. I was in my early 20s. This was a very long time ago. And we went to um, a famous gay bar. We went to uh, Woody's. Uh, oh, yes, yes. And, Which uh, now Woody's is basically just like straight white ladies on their bachelorette parties. Honestly, <laughs> a, a decade ago, it was kind of like that, too. Yeah. And I remember I was there and it was my cousin was taking me. I was like, ah, we're going to have a fun gay night. You got to come with me. You're my straight cousin or come with my gang. Well, you'll have fun. I'm like, hell yeah. You know, and I worked at a frozen yogurt shop in the neighborhood in Philadelphia. You know, I was like, OK, I know where all the spots are. I'm going to go to them, you know, like this is, this is going to be great. Oh, yeah. If, if you're listening and you're not familiar with Philly, we have a famous, really well-defined neighborhood called the Gaberhood that it's like a communal center that yeah. people know about. And it's, it ha- great. it's been well-defined since the 70s. When we were sitting in Woody's, I kind of like, well, I, I looked at him and I was like, this is a gay bar. Like, yeah, the music's a little bit louder and there's like fucking glitter on the ground. But like, this is it, you know? And he's like, okay. Okay, kid. Okay. (laughs) I see. Come, come on. Let's go somewhere else. I know another place. And and now I'm starting to get like a little more excited, but also a little more nervous. And he's he's like, okay, come with me. And we go to this place called The Bike Stop. And The Bike Stop is the last place leather bar in philadelphia i think it's still in operation i'm not sure i'm pretty sure it i'm is. pretty sure it is i know at the start of the pandemic there was a bunch of like uh like benefits i, I got a bike stop t-shirt off of one of my favorite local artists uh he's on instagram at come on strong awesome fucking shirts from this guy but anyway moral of the story we go to the bike stop and we're hanging out in there for a little bit and i'm like okay i can see this is a little grimier and i look and i'm like oh this is pretty cool and he's like we're not in the basement yet. <laughs> and I was like, okay. It just seemed like a regular like bar with like, you know, like people wearing leather jackets and stuff. We go in the basement and that's where it's clothing optional. But my cousin kept introducing me to everyone as his straight cousin. Oh, this is my cousin. He's straight. I could tell when he like was doing that, he had this like wry smile because as soon as everyone found out I was straight, I was like, oh. Oh, a straight boy, you know? And I was like a t- little 20-year-old blonde kid. Like, I still look <laughs> like a little twink. But even you, then, you do. I really, really did. 
so I was just like all night. Everyone was just buying me drinks, you know, like, let's fucking get let's see if we can win the straight boy over. And and it was great. I went to the bathroom once and I, I wouldn't go again. <laughs> I held my pee for the rest of the night. So no yellow hanky for you. No yellow hanky for me. But it was it was a great night. And I could tell that this was a community that was not my community. Yeah. But was incredibly beneficial for the city and for the gay scene and the leather scene and just like the scene in general. And it is something that sort of died out in a, a literal way and in a, you know, metaphorical way in the 80s. It's back, though. It's back. It's back. Oh, actually, I wanted to shout him out. And since we're talking about this right now, so my friend Sean Porter, who worked at the bike stop for years and is the person I know best who has like a lifelong history of being part of the leather scene since he was probably like 14, which is, you know, wild. But I just wanted to shout out this site that he runs called Sacred Debris. It Basically what he does is he, he and the other people he work with on this site are sort of you know, gay history archivists. And they've documented a lot of leather community stuff, a lot of piercing fetish stuff. And so if you are somebody who likes this movie because you're fascinated by the leather aspect of it, definitely check out his site. For sure. It's really important work that he does. Also, you could find him on Sacred, on Instagram as at Sacred Debris. Yeah, Sean Porter's great. Uh, I want to circle back real quick to one of the reasons why I think that Cruising is such an important film. It's, it's a snapshot of a time just before it kind of came to a close. Yeah, yeah, just before AIDS. Just before the AIDS epidemic. Like I, literally a year after this was the first HIV case yeah, so in the U.S. But like the way that they like depict some of the scenes when they're cruising, like outside of the bars, when they're in parks and they're out in yeah, public yeah. and like you see people like under a bridge, like giving a blow job and like, like those kinds of scenes where like... Rob Halford's Caligula. Yeah. Hell Which yeah. Is, yeah. I get that one. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that like all of this sexual excess is just humming in the background. When I was watching it, I was thinking, this doesn't seem real. And yet. There was this window of time. Like a whole decade. Where it was just this beautiful fucking, it was just this wonderful time where you can fucking suck a dick in Central Park. Really? <sighs> and a lot How of other places. How was there crime then? If you could live in a time where you could just like, you know, I had a bad day. I'm going to get sucked off in the park. You know, wouldn't there I mean, was a the, lot of crime. That's though. what I mean. Central how Park is, was really dangerous. How is that not a utopia? I imagine it was the leaded gasoline, but uh, <laughs> a lot of theories. But I mean, the fact that this movie exists as like kind of the last snapshot yeah. of this the era. The first and last snapshot yeah. for mainstream Hollywood films. Precisely. <laughs> like, it's just like, I mean, this is one thing that Friedkin has complained about, or not complained about, but has said in interviews, the timing wasn't right for the film and that he kind of regrets some things in here and there. Understandably. Yeah, for sure. But also, like, I'm so fucking glad that he made it when he did. You know, because it was 
the last opportunity before things got very, very different. And also, like, after the box office disaster of Sorcerer, he decides to, like, instead of, like, playing it safe, he's like, no, I'm going to make cruising. I'm going hard. Yeah, like, he's double-downing on it. Precisely, and I, I love that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we didn't talk about is this sort of clusterfuck around is this an adaptation of a novel is it based on a true story and so it's like isn't it just based on a true story no it's it originally the novel was written like 10 years prior yeah, the novel's written in the late 60s it comes out in 1970 wait hang on i'm, I'm sorry is the novel not based on a true story either or it's, is it if it's um no it's all of, it's a frankenstein monster of things yeah the novel was originally and it takes place in like straight gay clubs yeah and, there's no leather in the novel yeah and friedkin didn't like that he's like that's boring oh and straight then, oh it's just regular gay yes 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 that's how i think of it too and earlier when i was when I was basically saying that I feel like some of the contra- original controversy is straight gay people yeah. who don't want the leather. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I know that's, exactly that's straight, what you mean. Straight is like an old timey way of saying normal or like yeah. milk toast. Gotcha. I, I totally get what you're yeah. saying. Sorry. Continue, no, that was continue. my fault. I should. But yeah, it, then um, the guy he worked with on a few movies who was uh, Sonny Grosso's partner who was who Gene Hackman's based off of in The French Connection. He actually did what Al Pacino's character does in this movie, but he wasn't after a serial killer. He was after these two guys posing as cops that were kidnapping people and threatening to out them for money. It was kidnapping and extortion. And that was, it's wild. And he did the same thing. Like he had like a Paul Servino higher up. They'd meet up with once a month and he would just go around and try to find these guys. And then, and, and also we didn't say, the guy who wrote the novel was a journalist. Yes. So I think that's the confusion around he's adapting a true story. But the big one is... The, the bag murders. The bag murders. And not only were like these people like uh, from gay clubs being found in... like I think they... I forget what it's called, but like they didn't have all the parts, so they don't know what they to do with them. They were dismembered. Yeah. And it's so like in the beginning of the movie where you see these limbs wash up and there's that sign on the bag. So there, in, in the very beginning, there's this thing at the morgue that just says C-U-P-P-I, which is uh, Circumstances Unknown Pending Police Investigation, which is the bin that all the bagged limbs are going in. That's how the murders were known. So there are, I think this is why Friedkin was interested enough to make the film is because there were real murders because he always liked to tie things back to factual events. But to go one deeper, the guy who got caught for one of the murders who pled guilty to all of them for a lenient sentence. So crazy. Is in the exorcist. No, I don't think he did plead guilty to all of them. I think the whole thing is so confusing. So the bag murders. Hang on, I, I know about this guy. This is the guy that they does the anesthesia scene or yes, something. Yes, you'll with see him Reagan. with the leather bracelet. So that's one of the, one of the only things Bateson. I knew about about cruising was that the guy in The Exorcist is the cruising killer, which is so, maybe not true, but might he, be. He killed one person. Yeah, he so he killed this film critic 
in the 70s. Who gave yeah. The Exorcist a bad review. Yeah, who among us hasn't wanted to fucking kill a film critic at some <laughs> I mean, I certainly have. Yes. But Whom amongst us? Okay, so this guy named Addison Verrill, who was a gay film critic, was murdered, stabbed in his home after having sex, which is similar to the first murder that we see in Cruising. But meanwhile, at the same time, and this is real life I'm talking about, not the movie. At the same time, there are these limbs washing up in bags. And this other gay journalist who wrote for the Village Voice named Arthur Bell. Arthur Bell wrote this series of articles about these bag murders, but also about the murder of Addison, who was his friend. And when he wrote this article about Addison's murder, he called the killer a psychopath. And so fucking Paul Bateson calls him on the phone at his house and says, I killed this guy. I just want you to know I'm not a psychopath. I wanted to have a relationship with him. This is how my life has gone wrong. I have an an alcoholism problem. Uh, No offense. Hearing someone call you a psycho and you go fucking, I killed him and I'm not a psycho. Like, that's some psycho shit right there. Isn't it crazy? Can Can you imagine this movie ends in 20 minutes? Because, like, the killer just reveals himself because hey, somebody wrote... Oh, like. but, but, it, but it's like it gets crazier from there. So based on this phone call between Bateson and Bell, Bateson is arrested, gives the same confession to the police that he gave to Bell. And through this series of events, Bateson tells other prisoners, suggests to a journalist who I think is Bell suggests to William Friedkin when Friedkin comes and interviews him that he killed other people too. Okay. But there's been a, but he was never charged for those crimes. And so wait, because of lack of evidence, but wait, the crazy thing is it gets further complicated because some people think that the cops were just trying to pin those other crimes on Bateson so that it would sort of be like neatly wrapped, wrapped up in up. a bow. Yes, they can get their their guy. But I think he probably probably did. Okay, so this is a stupid question, but forgive me. Is cruising based on a true story, or is it? It's a it's, yes, it's, it's partly. Partly, but it's an amalgamation of a Two fictional novel. Two stories and a novel. Like I said, it's a Frankenstein's so monster. In, in that of case, I, I would say this is not based on a true story. It's inspired by like the a, yes. a, some true events, sort of. As m- you know? most of his cop movies are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're they're like based on some tr- some real person who he usually gets to consult on the film, and he got Bateson to consult basically after Bateson was in The Exorcist. So crazy. Yeah. It's like you could make a movie about the making of cruising. I almost think that that is why, or rather, I mean, there's multiple reasons why, but that is one of the reasons why I feel like this sits firmly in a camp of films that are exploitation movies. You know, I, I mean, like, yes, this is a real movie by a real director, the guy that made the exorcist and sorcerer and fucking the French connection. But this is a fucking exploitation film. I don't know what, how else to say it. And the fact that like he is consulting with someone who is maybe the real fucking killer, maybe while a making serial the movie, killer. That's like exploitation director. Well, I mean, shit, even you know? even just to to go to the blatantly obvious, the <laughs> fact that it's like we're gonna show you this 
leather scene that no other movie is. That's an exploitation yeah. movie yeah, thing it's right there. So wild. But to slightly counter your point, Fritz Lang, who made the very first serial killer film, M went and interviewed a bunch of serial killers. And so I well, think there's some hey, research. You know what? But Free can also idolize Long. And, yeah, and, and, and so this is a theory that, that John, you've posed uh, many, many years ago to me that I think about all the time. And I think when you first told me this theory, uh, I didn't disagree with it, but I was kind of like, I'm not too sure. You said that the greatest horror movies and genre movies in general are made by auteurs, people who aren't just genre filmmakers, who are people who, you know, have a, have a singular vision that doesn't necessarily line up with an exploitation movie or a horror movie. Well, like, that's paraphrasing it. My idea was, like, you find a director who wants to make Fellini movies, but he teams up with a producer who wants to make an exploitation movie. Yes. And then those two Gold. cross paths. Yes. I, yes. I, I stand by that. But I mean, but even the idea of someone who doesn't work in that scene, like think uh, fucking Kubrick uh, with The Shining. One of the, you know, people say it's one of the greatest horror movies of all time. We can have our disagreements however we like. But it's, you can't deny the fact that that is a fucking a weird movie. Yeah, yeah. That I love The Shining. Is nothing like any other horror movie, and is so singular. And so I mean, The Exorcist the too. The Exorcist. And I know a lot of people say that uh, that cr- cr- not a lot of people. This is actually a very uh, like minority answer, but I, I I think it's really interesting that a lot of people say that Cruising is Friedkin's best horror film. I, I think it's more I think it's more of a thriller than an outright horror film, but I think it's his best film. Oh, really? Yeah. Damn. Uh, oh, okay. Hang <laughs> are on. You, so we're are gonna, you okay? Oh, hang on, hang on. I, I, got, I, got, I got a new avenue of thought here. John, what's your favorite freaking film? <laughs> I can't pick. Oh, fuck you. Come I mean, on, gun to your head. Uh, I'm going to pull the trigger in three seconds and you're going to be fucking I mean, dead. all three... Oh, no, it's... Oh. It, it's like it's sort hard. of a tie between no no I, I love cruising. ties no I think cruising is his best film love that I think tied for second place is The Exorcist and To Live and Die in L A good for you I don't really care for the French Connection uh, John the gun is to your head and I'm gonna pull the fucking trigger what is his I, number one film is this, I think is it Sorcerer no I love The Exorcist I love To Live and Die I love oh fucking my God, French Connection yeah I know I can't pick <laughs> they they all kind of exist in like. They're, they're almost like one series of movies to me, yeah. even though they yeah. don't they don't like have any recurring characters, but they feel but they feel like they yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. Or like these are people who know each other. Right. And the theme, so like like they're all about like um like these subsections of masculine men, either cops or uh perverts. Like in The Exorcist, you know, the priests. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Alcoholic uh, Irishman is what we call them. Yeah, yeah. Are they Italian? I'm sorry. One is Italian. The other one is Swedish oh, yeah, because Swedish. you can't possibly well, yeah. see Max von Sydow as anything yeah, yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weepy-eyed Catholic. I mean, like, uh, I, I can't pick. Okay. It's, it's, well, here. What's I'm, your favorite? Yeah. It's not even a fucking thing. It's The Exorcist. The Exorcist is one of the greatest films of all time. It's one of the best horror movies of all time. And I always forget, whenever I'm making my top five horror movies list, I'm always like, you know, Dawn of the Dead, Gates of Hell, Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre. I always forget The Exorcist. 
every time I watch it, I get scared. A real sense of fear and death and like the worst, like it makes me think about every bad thing I can possibly think of whenever I watch it. It has this chilly air to it. Yeah. Yes. And like, while I do love Sorcerer, I think Sorcerer is an excellent film. I think Wages of Fear is better. I, so that's, that's my problem. Because that's it's my a problem remake it. and it doesn't exceed the original. Like, even though it's great, like, Wages of Fear is amazing, and Sorcerer is amazing. Wages of Fear is one of the best Wages movies of, of all time. Wages of Fear is the superior film. It knocks Sorcerer down I, a peg. Like, I if love, you're going to remake something, you better fucking... I love the Wages of Fear. I look at Sorcerer less as a remake and as William Friedkin's cover of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, no, no, there's a difference between a, yeah. like, remakes that are just like by the numbers, like for the money. That's a good and way then, to put it. And then there's, it's just exactly like, there's like when a cover band does covers and then when like an artist does a cover and you're like, yeah. oh, it's just his take and there's a reason why we have covers. Yeah. Okay, wait, I need to go back to something for a second. So, I agree that The Exorcist is one of the best horror movies ever made, but... Have you seen Exorcist three? Of course. I think it's I think it's scarier than the Exorcist. No, it's it's not. It, it's great. I love it. Holy fuck! It's it's amazing. It's the best unnecessary sequel of all time. Absolutely. I would say that that the Exorcist is a movie that doesn't need a fucking sequel at all. Thank God that we have three of them. Five, <laughs> five of them. We're about seven to get. Of we're, them. we're about to get three more. From, no. from Blumhouse, yes. Stop oh, it. Yeah, Blumhouse are... No. Yeah, are, they just okay. signed Ellen Burstein. I gotta be... Oh, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> is it um, gonna be like Exorcist Kills? Uh, <laughs> Exorcist which is funny Oh my because, God, stop it. Because just like what they did with Halloween, they take a franchise where you only need parts one and three and are adding three more installments yep. to it. 100%. But to Ellen Burstein's credit, <laughs> Jesus. she said she would never do an exorcist uh sequel or anything like that and they went up to her and they're like what do like how what amount of money what do we need to do to get you to do this and she made them pay a massive donation to like her local acting school to to be in the exorcist so like hats off to her yeah Yeah. good for her yeah what a what a nice person yeah but no if she said no, maybe the whole fucking thing oh, wouldn't yeah. have happened. No, they probably they would have gone. God damn it, Ellen Burstyn. But yeah. um, you know also, what? We hang don't fucking on. need any new actors. We we don't just need parts one and three. Exorcist two is yeah. an incredible piece of cinema. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Exorcist two is a fucking piece of shit. How the second dare Exorcist you? Is a a mess of you've only seen it once at seven in the morning. I remember Morricone yes. score being nice. What the, the Morbius score? Morricone. Morricone. Oh, like, <laughs> um, but all right. To, to to go back to uh, yeah, let's get back to cruising before this turns this into is, a fist fight. Hey, did you read about the killings? Homo killer on the prowl. Yeah, I was reading about that. Talking every gay bar in town. I'm scared to death of cruising myself. I'm gonna get that guy. Cops are gonna do it. Cops? Listen, if they get their hands on him, they'll make him a member of the vice squad. Let me tell you something. We had another killing like this one about five or six months ago. I don't even think it made the papers, but we heard about it around here. The victim was a teacher at Columbia. They found him in his apartment in about 10 pieces. Detectives came around, asked some questions for a couple of days. Nothing came of it. I guess you can't be too careful, huh? Mm. 
Some people refer this as part two of William Friedkin's Possession trilogy. Yeah, I could see that. I could totally see the possession themes. Cruising and Rampage. Have you seen Rampage? No. Which is a lesser movie. I haven't because I've heard in my head, it's hard for me to imagine a Friedkin serial killer movie not being great, but I've heard such mixed things. Hang on, here's the thing. I actually have seen Rampage. The Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I don't remember any possession (laughs) taking place with these giant monkeys smashing buildings. There's only one giant monkey. There's a giant wolf and a giant lizard. (laughs) Rampage plays like a Law & Order episode. It's not that good. He made it in 1987, and then the company went bankrupt, so it wasn't released until 92, and he like tinkered with it. Uh, Hang on. Um, It does have some brutal child murders. What makes... Wah, 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 wonder. What makes fucking cruising a possession film? He gets possessed by the spirit of a leather daddy killer. Yeah. So, okay, we haven't talked about the ending. I really want to get into it. Okay, so the ending of cruising, like the ending of many Friedkin films, which is one of my favorite things about him as a director, is pretty ambiguous. Very much so. And I think The Exorcist ends the same way. To Live and Die in L.A. kind of ends the same way. Yeah. Even French Connection, it's there's oh, this sure. sense of like, wait, what just happened? It, it, it doesn't feel unsatisfactory. Like, it, it doesn't... It's not that things aren't wrapped up or you They're don't know. They're just not tidy. Yeah. I think things are messy. The other ones are more open-ended rather than ambiguous. Yeah, whereas this one... This so, one's definitely... Hang on. Can I ask you john what happened how does this movie end or or can what you, do you how, what's your interpretation yeah well, well, well and first tell us how the, how it ends and then your interpretation it ends the murders are are solved and this guy takes the rap for all of them but another murder happens and then al pacino goes back to his apartment and karen allen puts on the aviator glasses and the hat that the murderer always wears that we never see Al Pacino wear in the club, but he wears them when he returns home from like wandering around that night. Well, yeah. so, so some of it is... And then Al Pacino stares at the camera and fucking like give... And you're supposed to... Okay, so what the fuck happened? So Al Pacino's character, I should start calling him Steve and not Al Pacino. He's Al Pacino. It's Al Pacino. Al Pacino. Yeah, he may be Officer Steve Burns. What a generic fucking name. Yeah, it's Al Pacino. She got a great ass. And you got your head all the way up it. So he figures out that he, he sort of narrows it down to this guy named Stuart who is a Columbia student. He's this, you know, gay stereotype, has a bad relationship with his dad, is studying musicals. Oh, the history of American musical theater. Like, that was one of the moments where I, like, rolled my eyes. I was like, oh, wow, the gay Uh, killer is a fucking... But I think that was supposed to be a joke. Okay. That that was my interpretation of that. It felt like a big character. Sure. But... He is a regular at the leather clubs and based on things we've seen in the movie prior, it seems pretty clear that he's the killer. And so Al Pacino figures that out and basically starts stalking him, breaks into his apartment, just like chills at the park across the street and watches him all the time. And it's so creepy. It's like this character shift where he's not just a cop doing a job. He's like stalking a guy he maybe wants to fuck or maybe wants to be or I don't even know. So 
one night towards the end of the film, he follows him and they go into the park and no one is there. And they basically start having sex in this really uncomfortable scene where it's like they're playing chicken, like who's going to get their dick out first. And they attack each other. And it's sort of unclear whether Al Pacino attacks Stuart first or is just defending himself, but he stabs Stuart. Stuart gets arrested and tries to deny everything. But Paul Sorvino is like, no, we know it's you, you jackass. And so you think, okay, the murders have been solved. But the murder that John mentioned there's this gay guy who lives in the apartment right next to Steve, who Steve develops this kind of tender friendship with. Yeah. And you're not sure if he just cares about him as a friend or if he has a crush on him. And his name is Ted. He's this playwright. Ted has this really aggressive dancer boyfriend who's played by uh what's James his Ramar. name James Remar in like right after he's in the Warriors when he's super hot young early 80s James Remar but so the implication is like maybe James Remar's character was jealous because Steve confronts him at one point and they get into a fist fight and James Remar's like you're fucking crazy you bastard Pussy. Ah, you cocksucker! You do it again, I'll call the police, asshole! You're in love with him! You love him, don't you? You're crazy, mister! You want to come in? You want to play? I'll play with you! So maybe James Remar killed Ted out of jealousy. Maybe Ted was killed by Al Pacino's character when Al Pacino... To exorcise the gay out of him? Yeah. yeah but but then he takes... Why would he take the hat and the glasses home then? Because like, I totally get the possession angle. Right, but do you notice one thing? I, I did not notice this until this viewing of it. What's that? James Remar picks up a knife and aims it at Al Pacino when like mm-hmm. Al Pacino breaks in it's yeah. the same knife used in all the murders same exact knife same exact blade shape so and everything that, I've never noticed that no I actually did notice that during that whole scene with the knife yeah. I kind of thought are they making an implication here the reason why I didn't really follow that line of thinking was because the way he was holding the knife was scared yeah like he was holding it with two hands and he was like, and he was scared. Yeah. Like, get but, away from me, buddy. But and it, the killer ties his victims up before he, he, well, no, not all. He, he stabs the one guy in the back. But I don't know. I mean, there's a difference between, like, confrontation and ambush. Yeah, well, I, I think it just And obviously makes, he does stab somebody to death if we were to believe that he stabs the, his boyfriend. All the people who are killed are stabbed. Yes, yes. But what's interesting is we don't see any of the dismemberments. And also, I'm just realizing, um, what's the what's the roommate? Not James Ramar, but the, the boyfriend. He's stabbed in the front. Everybody else seems to be stabbed in the back in this movie. Yeah. Which, I mean, like, that Which, might mean nothing, but it still well, seems like an M.O. to me. Yeah, and it's like he's 
on the floor of the bathroom. The, yeah. yeah, he's on the floor of his apartment, not in bed, not in a gay yeah, club. Yeah, my read was one hundred percent that it was Al Pacino that killed him. Yeah, because, me too. Because he did develop feelings for him, and he needed to completely wash his hands of this whole experience and go back to his straight life. And in order to tie up every single like loose end he had to kill this guy that he developed an affection for while while undercover and paul sorvino seems to know yeah paul sorvino gets called to the the captain gets called to the crime scene and is just sort of like jesus christ another gay killing like what the fuck yeah. but then when he realizes that Al Pacino has John been living Forbes. next door. Yeah, his his undercover identity of he, John. He Forbes. looks devastated. But so he must guess. Uh, the other thing that happens there, who's the cop? Joe Spinell. Joe Spinell. And he asks him his name. He looks at his like little name tag thing and realizes that that trans yeah. character who has been saying that this guy's been harassing. Oh, do you know who that is? Yes. It's the serial killer from, from 10, 10 to, to midnight. midnight. Have you ever seen 10 to Midnight? I actually only saw have seen the ending. Okay. It's wonder. It's 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 Charles Bronson versus Richard Speck and it fucking kills. Yeah. It's amazing, but I also don't think he's supposed to be a trans character. Oh, okay. I think he's just a gay hustler who sometimes wears drag. Women's, yeah, drag. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. The that last scene with Joe Spinell in there. It seemed like Paul Sorvino was like working through so much stuff and yes. like putting everything together. And basically in that scene, it was him like saying to himself, like, okay, I am not going to fucking ruin the career of Joe Spinell's asshole rapist closet gay cop character who does heinous things throughout the film, especially in the opening scene. And nor am I going to confront Al Pacino's character with this murder. He's going to, like, let both of this slide. Yeah. Yay, you know, like, and, and that goes back to, like, Friedkin's, like, disdain for cops and the fact that, like, their objective is not to actually provide any justice to the world. It is to maintain the system and when there is a killer who's doing so much shit that like the politicians are saying like you need to get something figured out here then it looks like they're doing good and they're going out of their way to help you know he but does seem not. to have empathy though and it's an it's an indictment of the institution not necessarily the people well i i do think in friedkin's films you have certain characters who are shown as doing trying to do their best in a broken system and I sort of feel that way about the captain. Yeah. I always, like, I kind of would have liked it better if it was more cynical. And this person was just following orders and let, like, okay, we're going to let this person take the fall because the politicians are up my ass. And then, oh, somebody else is murdered. We didn't even get the right guy. And it's just, like, this cycle of violence is going to restart. And it's exhausting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. He plays, t it's too, like, sad dad for me, where I would have liked it more he, if he was just... very sad dad. Yeah, if he was just a bit more, like, get the job done or it's your ass, kind of. There there are moments where he, where he is kind of like that, but he does have... I feel like the sad dad stuff almost adds to it a little bit, you know, that, that usually he's... He's so world-weary in it, yeah. which I feel like just sort of underscores 
the way I see Friedkin's universes as just being this like Sisyphean uphill battle against crime, and it just breaks people down. Pacino, in his most electrifying screen performance, Cruising, the astonishing new film about trawling for anonymous trysts in New York's leather bar underworld. Now, the most talked about film of 1980 comes home with the new Cruising Electric playset from Ramjack. All the back alley action, the dark streets, the handsome stranger, and you, the hungry hunter. Real world random rendezvous all in one 30 second scale. First, make contact and lock eyes. Got it. Now make the block and check the hanky code. Ramjack's real digital readout controller cross-referenced with real life up-to-date handkerchief signals. Water sports. Once more around the block, you've got to time it just right. There, you've got him. Oh no, the cops. No, it's just some guy dressed like a cop. The cruising electric playset. Additional strangers sold separately. So, when I first saw this movie, I was a bit disappointed. I really liked it, but I thought we were gonna get like this like tense chase movie, French Connection, To Live and Die in L.A. That kind of like energy with Al Pacino just running from gay club to gay club, like trying to catch this like. Driving a car through gay clubs. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I and I got something that like I really liked, and it was sort of like the flip side of those movies, where those movies are like car chases in the day. This is like some after hours, more abstract, definitely. So like originally, just kind of like expecting like this genre movie to take place in this cool like environment, and getting something that was much more thought provoking that I wasn't ready for, and I had to like watch it again like two weeks later. Especially like I was waiting for a long time to see this one. This is like I was like, oh, I can't find it anywhere. When it finally comes out, I'm gonna get it. My first thing notice this is a minor gripe within the movie. Just how terrible of a fucking detective Al Pacino is in this movie. Oh my god, he's the worst. He, all the detecting is done around him. And I know like that's not what the movie's about, but still, like it would have been cool if we had a bit more like gumshoe shit going okay. on. That complaint I absolutely noticed, and I realized that it's because he's a fucking straight guy that he can't actually get in close enough because he's intimidated by this scene that he can't really like lose himself in it there is the one wonderful scene where he's fucking huffing the uh and dancing and yeah. dancing. finally lets yes. loose for the first time it's, it's great it's really nice to see you know him just having a good time in the fucking yeah. club it, it's it's difficult the first time i watched it was like i couldn't get a read on him which i know yeah. is like the point but thankfully there is actually out there a remake of this film oh my God. that corrects all of these issues that that goes into real detail. I'm going to break this bottle of Topo Chico and stab Charles right now. Listen, there's a wonderful film out there from Hong Kong starring Sam- Sambo. Sambo Hung. Oh, that's not entitled, where I thought you were going with entitled this. Pantyhose Hero. Pantyhose Hero. Okay, the which pan- is the homophobic one? Oh my god! Yeah. Every single like, criticism so leveled, you know, at cruising, and, and it's so funny that like all my life, I, not all my life, but like for like a good chunk of my life, I was like, oh, I don't want to watch cruising. It's the homophobic movie, right? No. And then when I see pantyhose here, I'm like, let's watch the pantyhose <laughs> hero. Like this. Meanwhile, there's an AIDS joke every th- oh three God. minutes and thirty seconds. Granted, it's a 1990 film. And 
almost every Hong Kong comedy from that period, they somehow work in AIDS jokes. And and it's funny, though. I remember the first couple times I I saw Hong Kong movies where they would make an AIDS joke, and I would be like, ooh, yikes. And then, like, the more Hong Kong movies that I see, it's just like, all right, I'm just going to take my shot (laughs) and, you know. Roll with it. uh, Here we go. But the pantyhose hero. It's incredible. It's it's really good. (laughs) But also... I feel like they are better detectives in it. That they take their job as being gay a little bit more seriously. And they take solving the crimes more seriously. Yeah, like they're, they're much more capable detectives. Sambo Hung, and is it Jackie Chung? It's Alan Tam. Alan Tam, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they pose as a gay couple undercover in what really can only be described as an action comedy version of Cruising. Ugh. Without the leather. Yeah. But it's still... It also has some of those... There's like this incredible fight scene in the beginning where Samo is like slammed down on a car hood. It's like, how did he not break his back? Like, definitely if you watch it, it's amazing. But brace yourself for the really unfortunate 90s homophobia jokes. Yeah, that that Hong Kong brand of homophobia. And what's funny is the movie actually tries to... And this almost makes it more offensive. It tries to like be sensitive, be sensitive sometimes. at times, and it's just like you guys are fucking homophobes. Clearly, like, well, I don't want to. It, it makes it easier for me to ignore because it happens so relentlessly in Hong Kong comedies where they make gay jokes and they make these like date rape jokes. Yeah. And and then when you find out about some of these guys, like mm, I mean the thing not is not Samo. Not well, I don't fucking know about Samo, but um, who's the other fucking big boy? Eric Sang. Eric. Oh Sang. yeah, he got in trouble. Yeah, fucking, he got like mega me too, like on fucking like Weinstein levels. Oh what? Oh, I thought it was just a one. N- multiple people. There was like oh, one yeah. that was like the really bad one yeah. who like late like lady like killed herself eventually. Yeah, and, it's the story's horrible. And also like back to the the, the gay stuff like like Leslie Chung like look what happened to him he fucking killed himself because there was very little support that he had from almost anybody in that scene save for people like anthony wong and simon yam who yeah. both had incredible amount of empathy to queer people and often oh yeah there's a great interview that our friend bobby sent me that that we've put in the discord and we'll we'll have to share if anyone's interested but Simon Yam basically gets asked why he plays this gay antagonist character, the judge in uh, Full Contact. And he talks about how he loved playing the character and it was an honor. And there should be so many more films where different kinds of desire are explored. And Anthony Wong directed one film where he plays this gay radio DJ and it's so hard to find. And I yeah, he also was very outspoken in his support of Leslie after Leslie died. Yeah. Uh, our boys. We really got on the tangent. Sorry. Yeah. It, I was, love our it boys. was also just Leslie's birthday. Uh, happy birthday. Uh, is there anything else on cruising or Friedkin you guys would like to, to touch on before we close out? Just that I I don't know what took me so long, but I finally saw To Live and Die in L.A. for the first time. And 
Holy shit, it's so good. I love it. It yeah. rules. It I think that's the feels... end of his golden age. It's like from, I believe yeah. that. from like French Connect. Oh, no, actually, his, no, he has like the birthday party, the boys in the band, which is his first like, Oh, his gay first movie. gay movie and one of the first iconic Hollywood gay movies. What's it called? The, the, the birthday party. Not the, the birthday boys in the party. Band, the boys, boys in the, in the band. What's the boys in the band? It's a uh, who wrote the play? It was like a it was a it was a big play, or theater or whatever you call those. Play. Play. Yeah. yeah, I've never yeah, yeah. I've never seen a play. You've never seen a play. I've always wanted to. Holy never, shit! Where do I go in Egg Harbor Township to see a fucking? No, play? no, no! You yeah. don't wow. go to Egg Harbor. That's what I mean. Shit. Like you go to yeah. fucking Broadway or yeah. something. Oh my it's, god! It's based on an off-Broadway play from the late sixties. You've never seen a play. I've Let's always take wanted to. John to a goddamn play. We're taking you, man. We're gonna go on a date. You're Find one with blood. Okay. Oh, we'll see Sweeney Todd. Okay. There are also a bunch of <laughs> operas coming up at the Met where they do often like crazy, start, crazy gore effects. I, I no, but start start with a play. Yeah. I yeah, want to yeah. know what they're saying. Opera don't unless opera has subtitles. They do. Opera always has subtitles. Oh. oh. Wow, you've never seen a play. Yeah. Anyway. Uh. <laughs> okay, boys in the band. Yeah. So he made other like it's not his only queer film i think boys in the band it's basically just a drama so it's like he didn't only make these sort of outlier kind of films that's awesome i i definitely have more freaking i need to see yeah me too i can't get out of my head this thing you said uh i promise we're closing the episode soon but you said this thing about how it feels like Friedkin's films take place in the same universe. There's a similar vibe right. going throughout all but of them. But that's what you get when you have an, a director with a vision and a yeah. style. You know? I honestly... So I, I've seen a bunch of his movies throughout the years, just kind of sporadically. I, I saw French Connection when I was younger, Exorcist, obviously. I know Sorcerer. I, it took me a while to finally track it down. But because... This week, I watched so many, you know, like one a night for a while. Yeah. It was so obvious to me, this through line, especially from French Connection to Live and Die, to, yeah. to Live and Die in LA. Yeah. Like, there is a fucking through line. And if you ever watch, his interviews are great. The oh, guy is yeah. a very no bullshit guy. It actually was quite boring. Uh, interior leather bar, that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe that um, uh, we've gone from the controversies uh, surrounding the making and then what actually you showed in cruising to now this boring imagination of the lost footage. I'm wondering, have you seen that film and do you have any uh, opinion about what they tried to do? <clears throat> uh, James Franco made that film and he, he sent it to me uh, on my iPad after he finishes. So I saw it on an iPad, and I can't really, I don't want to judge a film on an iPad. Uh, but he actually called me. I had heard that James Franco was trying to reimagine the 40 minutes or so that I had cut out of cruising. And I heard that he was making uh, his film. And uh, thought, that's interesting. And after several weeks, he called me. I had, I've never met him. But he got my number, and he, we spoke on the phone. And he said, you know, I'm trying to do uh, a film about the missing 40 minutes of cruising. I said, yeah, I heard that. 
And he said, what were the missing 49? I said, aren't you shooting this film? He said, yeah, I'm almost done. I said, why are you calling me now? He laughed and he said, well, can you tell me, can you give me a clue? I said, yes, it was 40 minutes of what you would call pornography that I shot because I was able to shoot it. The guys in the bars were friends of mine. And I used to hang out in the bar. This particular bar was the mine shaft. Mine shaft. The mine shaft uh, at uh, 835 Little West 12th Street in New York. It's now a bunch of fancy restaurants. He did this like hour long interview with Fritz Lang that's on YouTube. It's incredible. Whoa, the whoa. two of them having this that's really in depth conversation. Shit. I will happily it, watch it again because, anytime. Especially like, because you don't think of those two people as living in the same fucking. Yeah. yeah. But Friedkin's films wouldn't exist without oh, that wow. influence. Yeah, yeah, of course but, not. I mean, but, like but, two I mean, different eras. Yeah, yeah. that like yes. you don't expect them like living in the same, walking the same earth at the same right. time. But, you know? oh wow, God. that's incredible. Even his later stuff, like Killer Joe and Bug, I like those. Oh, yeah. Bug. Yeah. I really like Bug. Bug is great. I haven't seen Killer Joe, but uh, our friend Michael, a couple of years ago, made me watch The Guardian. Oh, my God. How did we not bring up The Guardian? I didn't realize existed. If you, like me, didn't know about The Guardian, it's what, like 94, 95? I, no, a little earlier, like 91, 92. Is that the one that's like the fucking tree rape yeah. scene in The Evil Dead, but for an entire movie? It's so, it's like the hand that rocked the cradle, but also it's about an evil dryad. Dryads are tree nymphs, for those of you who are wait, not wait, wait, Greek hang mythology on. Are, are druids something different? Yes, druids and dryads are two totally yeah, oh, different well, things. I did Dru- not know that. I, I, thought, I thought you got druid mixed up with triad, and I was like... <laughs> <laughs> okay, druids are Celtic priests, basically. They're real. Dryads are tree spirits, and William Friedkin made a great like domestic thriller horror movie about an evil dryad who tries to steal babies and has pet wolves. It's his Italian horror movie. It, it feels it, like yes, Italian it's horror. It's very weird. Like the sick. house it takes place in is like, looks like something out of Tenebrae. It's very like sparse and white, but like there's also just like nonsense, weird vibes. And like, there's a, a scene where like, a tr- like a, group of punks just come out hanging out in the woods yeah. and attack somebody and then get killed by fucking trees super violently it's like, like a if lamberto bava yeah yeah it's just like and like it only happens because like it's a horror movie we need this like graphic splatter scene that has Whoa. that kind of vibe okay yeah it's, it's very awesome. like yeah that sounds fucking like sick. like it feels like something that would have came out in argento's heavy metal period like phenomena and opera it's wild. But highly recommend. I thought it was going to be garbage. I'll check it out. Yeah, and then yeah. I was like, no, I, I, this it's, is fine. It's really fun. It's not The Exorcist. I imagine not. I, I am, I don't, I don't think any of his movies are. Although they're all like, there's made a lot of great movies. Cruising's better. <laughs> all right. Uh, do you guys got any shout outs? My only final shout out. So you know, I mentioned Sacred Debris, uh, is to Elizabeth Purcell, who I'm sorry is to Elizabeth Perchell, who is a queer cinema film historian. 
She has this great podcast called Ask Anybody, which I highly recommend listening to if you want to know oh, more about uh, gay films. Ask Anybody? Yes. Yeah, yeah, like B-U-D-D-Y. B-U-D-D-Y. Yeah, 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 I know her. Oh, she, she's great. She made a documentary called Ask Anybody that has been hard to get a hold of, but I think sometime around now, it's going to have a run at the Anthology Archives in New York. It, she's the one that restored that uh, that gay porn exorcist movie? Yes. She did a whole series oh, yeah. a few years ago about gay porn horror films on her Instagram that's amazing. We'll, we'll have to have her on the show if, oh, if she'll would, come on. Awesome. My girlfriend made me watch this gay porn horror movie. It was an, like an hour long about like an evil mirror. And I was like, okay, that's that's fine with me, you know. Like, and like, I'm thinking like most like like porno movies of that time, like 70s and 80s, it would be like an actual movie, and uh, and then like of course the the graphic porno scene. So I'm yes. like, yeah. And I was like, but still, it's gonna be a fucking cool horror movie, with like a mirror. The actual like movie itself is five minutes long, and the others it's just like dudes jerking off on this mirror, and I was just like. I want it just a porn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I forget what it's called though. I can't wait for us to do our uh, porno episode, our next porno episode. I know we already did a woman's torment, but I'm, I want to oh, do. Wow, a fucking... yeah, that feels like a million years ago. I know. It does. I, this November, let's do a. Fucking... What was the gay porno exorcist though? Because I would watch that one. Sex demon. Sex demon. I remember that had like a little tour. I think I was in Texas when it came around here. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to revisit some real queer cinema. Like, yeah. More, oh, yeah. more real than cruising. <laughs> anyway, I want to shout out uh, all the people who suggested that we. Oh this yeah! Episode. Thank you. I'm so glad we finally watched this. Like it took me way too long. Yeah, and I still can't believe it. Okay, so now the real question. What's that? Hips or lips? Lips. No fucking go hips. Try something new. I'll try anything twice. All right. So long, everybody. Bye. Night.